0: If there is no struggle,
1: there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation
0: are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar. The awful roar, the awful roar of, its of its many, many waters. Water. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or It It may may be be both both moral and and physical. physical, but it must be. It must be a struggle. But it must be a struggle. No struggle.
1: No progress. Frederick Douglass, orator and abolitionist, a man who needs no introduction. He teaches us that every real gain in the history of human progress has been born of earnest struggle. This show is devoted to celebrating his life, but it's also devoted to taking a hard look at the state of our own earnest struggle for racial equality and human liberation. Coming up the women who made Frederick Douglass the man he is.
2: I was getting frustrated reading other biographies and not being able to get at these women as much as I wanted to. We speak with
1: Lee Faut, author of Women in the World of Frederick Douglass, about the challenge of reconstructing those stories from the written record.
2: He moved through a very feminine world, and I found that a very wonderful story to tell. We also bring you excerpts
1: from a new soundwalk of Frederick Douglass's Rochester.
0: There are places that hold loss, that hold sorrow, that hold joy.
1: We'll speak with the creator, Annette Daniels Taylor, about how she uses poetry and performance to conjure up the forgotten voices of the 19th century.
0: You know, I have been accused at different times of being witch-like and I, I actually, I embrace that.
1: All that and more on this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. I'm walking up South Ave on a really hot summer evening towards the site of the Douglas family's last home here in Rochester. It's now the site of School 12 which was just renamed Anna Murray Douglas School and today it's pretty quiet. It's still too hot for many people to be out at the playground or the baseball field but we're gonna take a short walk down to Annie's Pond to see if we can conjure up some of the ghosts of the past. Douglas. There's no trace of the house or the barn that used to stand here. They burned to the ground in 1872 in what Frederick Douglass denounced as an act of racially motivated arson. This is also the place where Annie Douglas, Anna and Frederick's youngest, spent her short life. I'm gonna stop for a minute under the trees next to Annie's pond. They've been baking in this hot sun all day, and there's a sweet smell of pines in the air.
2: Little Annie
0: Douglas had a light. Little Annie Douglas was alive. Little Annie Douglas was being made of dreams. There's a
1: pale fledgling woodpecker in Annie the trees died. overhead calling for its
0: mother. Yes, one dark morning Annie died. Annie missed her mama, Anna missed little Annie too. Watching her play and sing, bringing joy to all she knew. This farm was Annie's only home where she loved, lived and grew. So take your time as you walk. So Anna and Annie can look at you. Rosetta, Lewis Fred. Charles and Annie, Rosetta, Lou, was Fred. Charles and Annie, Rosetta, Lou, was Fred. Charles and Annie, 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 Douglas.
1: The excerpt from Annie's song that we just heard was written and performed by our first guest, Buffalo-based artist Annette Daniels-Taylor. It's part of her new soundwalk, the Frederick Douglass Experiment, that takes listeners through some of the sites where the Douglases lived and worked during their years in Rochester. Annette is also a playwright and a poet, and a lot of her previous work is devoted to bringing stories of anonymous heroes of the Underground Railroad to life. I recently caught up with her at the Buffalo Public Library, where she gives frequent workshops, and is a performer with young audiences of Western New York. I began our conversation by asking her how a soundwalk differs from a traditional audio tour, and what appealed to her about it as an art form.
0: I'm finishing my MFA right now at the University of Buffalo, and I took a class with uh, Professor Terry Reeb, and she has created a number of soundwalks, and I was really impressed with the idea of people just leaving their homes, and like, and embracing like poems and ideas as opposed, you know, because you can, we can go on Google and look up like how, where, where this is and sort of figure out a, an audio tour. And, you know, we can find all that information. So I thought, what can I bring that's different would be just sort of my take, some kind of Afro-futuristic poetic performance that people could engage in. Because it's it's not like, my work is not going to, it's not top 40, you know, (laughs) I could probably get it in a gallery, but this is a way I felt I could actually, it could be directly given to the people. For
1: your composition of Annie's song, which Mm -hmm. is the song that accompanies um, the South Ave Farm site on the Soundwalk, what sources did you draw on um, to really create this kind of intimate picture of of a mother and daughter uh, um, family scene?
0: Um... I, you know, there was, there was so much. Frederick Douglass wrote, he was very prolific. He didn't write a lot about his family or his wife. and But Rosetta wrote a biography about her mother. So I used a lot of that. And, and I just, I walked around there trying to gather that sort of presence. Mm-hmm. And um, it made me think about, the family itself, other than Frederick Douglass, because he was away so much when they lived in that on that yeah. property. So I really felt, I think, the family, Rosetta, and Anna, and Annie, and like like the sense of togetherness. And there's a wonderful book uh, by a, an American poet um, who wrote a a book of poetry all dedicated to Anna Douglas and what she felt Anna Douglas felt and thought and saw. And I I read a lot of that. And then there was another book, and I believe it was called The Women of Frederick Douglass*, And that was very eye-opening and that inspired me a lot as well. So after taking those those texts in, then I had to sort of just go and meditate and think about myself as a mother. Like, what does that, what does all this mean? You know, because so often, you know, you hear the stories about, you know, the woman behind the man. And in the the 19th century and, and earlier, you know, there would not have been a Frederick Douglass as we know it without an Anna Douglas. And as uh, a 19th-century woman, a wife and mother of a, a very famous man who had a mission, and I believe, I would like to believe, this was their agreed-upon mission. Her role was really defined by taking care of the children and taking care of the house and making sure that Frederick had everything else that he needed to accomplish this mission. If that meant mm-hmm. clean shirts or being well-fed, having a clean house, then it was up to her to do that. Mm-hmm. And that was a very important role. It's the role that's always always gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. And so just constructing that, I had to think about loss. And I wanted to think about how Anna and Frederick thought about Annie's loss because in his writing when he does talk about Annie, he says that she was the light and life of his home and of his heart, of his world. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about those kinds of things. and this was the youngest child. and afterwards Anna got very sick and she just mm-hmm. she, her, her illness got worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And because he had so much work, to distract him, he was able to sort of deal with it that way, but because the home and the family was Anna's work and this was her youngest, she had no way to get away from that. It was everywhere she turned was Annie's ghost and so on. That's what I was trying to sort of embody with that piece and sort of surround people with the loss and the sort of the pain of it all mm. in this space, and then go on to something joy. I mean, sure. m- my kids and my husband always say things like, "like really good at making people cry, and so <laughs> I feel, instead yeah. of running away from that, like mm. maybe I should try and embrace mm. that as a gift. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes people need to feel other people's mm. pain to understand mm. the struggles and the challenges one has, to be yeah. great. Yeah. So I- I'd like to touch on the loss and connect it to the struggle and the fight to complete a great mission.
1: You end that song, Annie's song with the lines, the farm was her only home where she loved, lived and grew. So take your time as you walk so Anna and Annie can look at you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, you, you really want people to feel that haunting presence, mm-hmm. it seems like. Um, and listening to you talk it sounds like your your artistic process, you know, takes these kind of fragments from the historical record that we have, um, kind of routes them through your own personal experience as a mother, and produces this, you know, resurrects, conjures up this voice that otherwise, you know, the record doesn't give us access to. And I, I just find that really extraordinary.
0: You use the word conjure, and I guess that's that was is part of it. I, you know, I have been accused at different times of being witch-like, and I I actually I embrace that as well. <laughs> We're surrounded mm-hmm. by what I like to call the, the ghosts of the spirits of memory. I, st- I feel that there are, there are places that just sort of hold, that hold loss, that hold sorrow, that hold joy. Mm-hmm. And um, I think mm-hmm. as humans, it went, if we're open to it, we can feel those things. And um, it's really important to give honor to the beings that, have, that we've lost mm-hmm. in certain spaces. That was Annette Daniels Taylor, creator
1: of the Frederick Douglass Experiment, a soundwalk of Frederick Douglass's Rochester. Listeners can check out the entire project online at frederickdouglassexperiment.weebly.com. We'll bring you much more with Annette Daniels Taylor throughout the show, but for now, I want to introduce our second guest. Her work also involves creatively reconstructing the stories of 19th-century women, but through an academic approach. Lee Faw is a history professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. She's the director of gender and women's studies there, and she's the author of the 2017 book, Women in the World of Frederick Douglass, published by Oxford University Press. I had a chance to talk with her about her book by phone earlier this summer. Welcome to Our Earnest Struggle.
2: Hello, and thank you for having me.
1: So I wanted to start off by asking you about your framing for your book, Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. You've said that women in Frederick Douglass biographies often function in sort of the same way as negative space in art. And I think that's such an interesting and appropriate analogy, given that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of his day, right? So can you explain, first of all, what negative space is and how you think the women surrounding him functioned in
2: that way? The idea came to me of all weird places from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) I, I pick up ideas from the weirdest places, and it was an episode, and the sister was doing a drawing, and the art teacher was talking about negative space, and I hadn't even really conceived of this as a book, but I thought, my God, that is the perfect analogy. The space around the subject that defines the subject. And the more I kept thinking about Douglas and the women around Douglas, the more I thought, you know, especially as I was getting frustrated reading other biographies and not being able to get at these women as much as I wanted to, it was like, okay, if I could just say, blur him and blur everything else except them and get at that negative space, that feminine space around him. What would that say that was new about him and about the world that he moved through? And he moved through a very feminine world. And and unlike if you were to do that with a lot of other subjects of his time, male subjects of his time, him moving in that feminine world wasn't just going home and it being a largely feminine world. It was even when he was working into the activist world, especially at the beginning part of his life, that this is a place that's occupied by women who are helping him advance. And I found that a very wonderful story to tell and to research. Yeah, I wonder if you can
1: expand on that. I mean, was it a coincidence that he found himself so often in these feminine spaces?
2: It's not a coincidence. It's because of the world he was born into. Now, there are are points in his life when it does become, I think, very masculine. But when he's born, children are generally brought up in, even in the slave society, are brought up in a feminine world. You know, they're being taken care of by, in his case, a grandmother. And then he moves, he's moved from that into a kitchen, which is a feminine space. And he's still a child, so he's still being overseen by the cook, Aunt Katie, even though he hates her. And of course, that's, that story there is a story about feminine power and um, power in the hands of women, and the mistress, and then moving into Baltimore and being overseen by another mistress again because she's still a child. And uh, he's, he's giving, actually, this very interesting insight into the way women are handling power in a society that runs on power. And um, then he gets sent to Coveys, and that's when he starts to move into a very masculine world. So he's sent into the fields. But you know, when he's when he's moving in a black community, whether it be when he when he's a slave or when he's free, women are more, much have a much more egalitarian role there because everyone's poor, so everybody's got to work together, and so there's going to be women around him in much more equal roles. And this idea of separate spheres that is very much a middle-class, white, even urban phenomena, that's not going to be something that's really part of his world. And then, when he moves into the abolitionist world, the wing of the abolitionist movement that he moves into is the very, very extreme wing of the Garrisonians who believe in equality for everyone. Mm-hmm. And even if he wasn't moving into that extreme wing, he's still moving into a movement that relies heavily on women who have these organizing skills. They're the ones who are raising the money and doing all of the organizing, um, whether they're doing it as equal members in the body of the main organization or in auxiliary organizations. Mm-hmm. So. The fact that he's moving among women, that's a function of where he is and what he's doing and the activism he's engaged in. When it gets to the Civil War, that's where it got very frustrating because all of the language, even for the women's rights activists, all of the language becomes very, very masculine. And it's all about men to arms and men doing this and men earning their citizenship by going into battle and men, men, and then moves into Republican politics, which is men, men, men. So then it, then it becomes different.
1: It's a great overview of the work you've done in your book. And I definitely want to get into some of the relationships between Frederick Douglass and the women you discussed there. Um, but to just go back for a second to the idea of negative space around Frederick Douglass, the subject. He sat for so many portraits, right? But to my knowledge, his wife, Anna Murray Douglass, only sat for a couple. So I'm wondering, can you tell us what you think those portraits, or the lack thereof, tell us about her as a subject in her own right?
2: Well, you know, she, yeah, as far as I know, there's only those two portraits of her. You know, one, she's looking direct, dressing the camera straight on. And the other, she's got kind of a a three quarters pose, I think is what they call it. The two pictures of her look like they were taken not too far apart in time, like roughly in the same fashion of the era of what she's wearing. One of the dresses has a lot of tucking details on it. And it's very middle class, very upper class. So she's somebody who takes care in her presentation, very dignified. And then there's one that she's probably in the picture, which is their first house in Washington, D.C. There's kind of a distant picture. They're taking the picture of the house, but the family is standing in front of the house. And so she is most likely one of the women standing in front of the house. And I think actually that's very much more indicative of who she was, is her standing in front of the house with the family around her. But these, these seem to be the only pictures of her. And unlike her husband, she did not seek the spotlight.
1: Yeah. And I've heard you say that when you cross over to the other side, you're a little worried Anna might be there waiting with some choice words for you <laughs> for prying into her life so much as her biographer, right? <laughs>
2: um,
1: and, you know, that her absence from the historical record was at least partly by her own design. Is that fair to say?
2: I would—yeah. She didn't impress herself upon the record, and she didn't—the people who surrounded the family seemed to know very little about her. They might know a lot about him, but they didn't know a lot about her. When she died, hundreds and hundreds of people showed up for her funeral and carried her body across the river to be buried, and the funeral oration was put into the paper, and it's all about him. (laughs) And it's, it's she supported him doing a long list of everything he did. And she raised their children while he did all of these other things. And, it's, you know, it's like she very much kept that private sphere, which is something that with a lot of black women, especially women who came out of slave societies, I mean, privacy was a privilege and something they almost had to steal just as much as they did their own freedom. And so... For her, that was a privilege, and she didn't ask all these people to be poking into their house and making judgments.
1: Right, and one of those judgments we hear more frequently than many others in relation to Anna was that she didn't know how to read, and, you know, how could it be that the wife of the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who taught himself to read, you know, that somehow that didn't rub off on her. So I'm curious what you make of that, because so many people, both historically and today, have made so much out of it.
2: Yeah, and first of all, we're coming at her from the 20th century, and um, we're coming at her at the point of education. And then people are writing biographies, of course, for coming usually from a point of having degrees, advanced degrees. I mean, even myself, one of my first points of identification with Frederick Douglass was how reading liberated him, liberated his mind. And um, so we're like, how could somebody not read? Oh, my God! But to understand her, I had to go back and reimagine and reconstruct what did she see going through her life? How did she define herself? And um, I mean, who knows? It could have been a point of a lot of shame and pain for her, or it could have been a lot of things. But what was it that got her to that point? And you know, for one thing, when she and Douglas meet, he learned to read as a child. You know, his first education, he was first introduced to it as a little boy in what today would be elementary school, which is when most of us are introduced to it. So gaining that literacy, it was hard. One, I mean, I don't want to in any way take away from that, but it came earlier. She didn't have any of that. And her daughter says, you know, she growing up had no opportunities to learn any of this. So, when we get to the story that her daughter tells and the neighbor tells of her getting lessons, this is well into her adulthood. She'd probably be in her 30s by this time. This is a really painful thing to do, and then it's introduced to her, it's a white woman brought into her home, and again, understanding where she's coming from, her home, her domain, to then put her on a level with her children. This is not a comfortable situation for her. So, this is in no way going to be an incentive for her to learn to read. And then she's taking care of the whole house on top of that, and um, which is a point of pride for her. So, by the time it comes to that, you know how she's defined herself and what she takes pride in, and how she sees herself it doesn't come through literacy like it does for her husband. And and to learn to read, to please a whole bunch of other people, to fit what they want her to be, I can understand why she wouldn't go there. And I wonder if they had stayed, like if he hadn't become the great Frederick Douglass, or if they had stayed and he had become the great Frederick Douglass, but had done it, say, within New Bedford, where they would have been in a black community, where she would have been amongst people who are much more like herself black women of her age and black men of her age who are all trying to learn to read as a group with black teachers, if it might have been a different story.
1: I think your discussion of the difficulty of bringing some of these figures to life as subjects in their own right raises a point that feminist historiography regularly runs up against, right, which is, you know, how do you make these voices come alive, uh, when there are so few traces of them in the written record, and what ones there are are often so one-sided or or biased?
2: Oh, wow. Well, first, the first thing I try to do is get as much as I possibly can about the woman, whether it be like with Anna, somebody dictating a letter for her, somebody quoting her, anything anyone said about them from as many angles as possible. And sometimes, like with Betsy Bailey, Douglas's grandmother, or Harriet Bailey, there's almost nothing, which is painful. Like in the case of Douglas's mother, it's just him. And this is the memories that he's writing down in his 20s, thinking back to when he was under five years old, which is a distant space of time. And then try to get anything in the record that shows where they are and how they moved. The census, which is sometimes somebody else's perception of a person, like Anna's age fluctuated so wildly in the record <laughs> in the census. <laughs> and um, and then to to try to figure out what choices they would have had. Like, they did this. Were there other choices available to them? And not the choices you want them to have, but the choices they actually were conceivably had. And so having to do that through a lot of secondary research and then trying to find examples of women who are in similar circumstances.
1: For example, you talk about Betsy, Frederick's grandmother, right, who he remembers as a nurse. And it's just so interesting, given how much we don't know about her how much you were able to say about how she might have been and what her role within the political economy of the plantation might have been. Yeah,
2: because I mean, there's a lot of scholarship on midwives, you know, what they would sometimes call the grannies in plantations. And so I looked into that, and then I looked at how she's appearing in Anthony, the master's records, because he was over what Douglas called the overseer of overseers. I could look at those records and see how he's managing those slaves. And they matched up exactly to what Douglas was saying, how he and his family were being managed. And there was always an older woman on these different farms that he was managing who was looking over, overseeing the younger children. And I was like, well, that's exactly what Betsy's doing, you know, because somebody's got to be the child care. And then she's a midwife. Then she's showing up in the records being paid for delivering children. Even when they were enslaved, midwives made a lot of money. They would, of course, have to turn it over to their master. But it was also kind of gave them standing within the community. So what we end up with with some of these women like Betsy and Harriet is not so much answers but questions and that, you know, It could have been this. It could have been this. It could have been this. It might have been this. I'm going to proceed with, you know, this one as the most likely possibility. But I want, you know, I don't want to shut off the other ones. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying this is exactly factually true because there are so many question marks there. And I think it honors them to say that there are these question marks there rather than to just force this on them. And, yeah, that is when you when you have to tell a story, A happened and B happened and C happened, then you shut off all those others. And I think it's important to sometimes leave those avenues, at least point the way to those avenues so that people know that they are there. The real readers know that they are there. I mean, I do, I'm i very jealous of novelists and um, in, in people who work in a more fictional area because they can then make that leap and go into places that that are maybe just a little too far for a historian to go. Because we still have to... We can take certain imaginative leaps, but we still have to kind of hold on to the documentation. When you're working in a more creative area, you can take much further leap.
1: I have to say that over the many months that I've been researching and producing this radio show, I've often gone back to your blog, which is a forum where you've compiled what you call musings and fragments, things that kind of were left on the cutting room floor from the Women in the World of Frederick Douglass book project. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the unanswered questions or loose ends that you have on your blog that maybe you'd want to go back to someday in a future project?
2: Oh heavens! Um, a lot of mine are have to do where the documents went, because <laughs> because that's like I wish I knew where Julia Griffith's papers were. I wish I knew what at least what happened to them. I wish I knew um, more about uh, the Library of Congress papers, like how curated they were. I wish I knew. Um, Oh gosh. Oh if I could talk to Douglas, you know, um to sound a little bit by Bridget like Bridget Jones. But when did you first fancy Anna? <laughs> you know, um you know, what did you hope for for Rosetta? Um Rosetta, why did you like Nathan? <laughs> you know, um uh you know, there's there's all sorts of little things like that. And even even though I, I do not at all believe that he was carrying on with Audelia asing you know, why did why did you keep inviting her back when it's so clearly pissed off Anna? When it caused so, you know, why didn't you tell her? Look, this is just not going to work because it's causing too much turmoil in my household. Anna, what you know? Tell me more about your family. Where what became of the rest of your family? Bombara, it was that your father's name. Where did that name come from? You know, was he African? Was his father African? You know, there are so many loose ends that if I start thinking about them, that's where I would write the novel.
1: <laughs> We're talking with Lee Faut, history professor at Le Moyne College and author of the book Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. We'll be back with more of Annette Daniels-Taylor's Soundwalk: The Frederick Douglass Experiment, right after this.
0: This place atop a hill, a private roadway, a view of the city,
1: a reliable stop
0: on the Underground Railroad,
1: freedom seekers,
0: labyrinth of secret panels, closets, secreted poor human wretches from man hunters, bloodhounds usually not far behind that little den-like upstairs of Frederick Douglass's. Small table, few books, playing violin. How well I remember it. He kept words he found hard to spell. A large personal library. Mr. Douglas rode a large white horse. Being so tall and handsome, a massive and commanding figure, such unusual dignity of bearing.
1: You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. That was an excerpt of Jenny Marsh Parker, one of the compositions in Annette Daniels Taylor's Soundwalk that accompanies the South Ave farm site where the Douglas family lived for many years. I asked Annette to talk about her creative choices in bringing this character to life. For listeners, this was um, uh, the Douglass' one-time neighbor. I believe she was their neighbor on the on their original Alexander Street home, yes. and she wrote a memoir uh, towards the end of her life. She shares a lot of really intimate details, right? Remembering uh, seeing Frederick Douglass playing the violin through the window, you know, what he had in his office. What's your sense of who this lady That's was? So
0: funny, My kids found my uh, vocal interpretation of her reminiscent, do you watch Powerpuff Girls or have you, <laughs> like what was it the the devil or the, the it or him or whatever? He talks like this? like oh you sound like the demon and and I never thought now every time I listen to it I, I think of that one of my professors at U B thought uh, she um she kept t- trying to debate with me whether or not Jenny uh, was uh, like a new england woman or you know or, or, or well educated and i was like, i think she she was well educated she her family was you know anyway but that's what i imagined her to sound like which it's actually quite funny now however <laughs> i did i i you know i i got some pages of her of one of that book mm-hmm. and i simply made a blackout poem of those words mm-hmm. and uh and and that's what you hear and i just imagined her you know I guess it's it's my it's my prejudice or my stereotype of the nineteenth century white woman, what this middle class woman would have lived like um, I imagined it was a lovely, comfortable living room with a fireplace and that she could see, you know, carriages and and people walking past her window when she spoke when she was probably having tea talking about Frederick Douglass and that's how i had um, i staged it but um that and i and i and i wanted to include her because i i wanted someone who was not a member of the family and maybe not someone that was that well known and and mm-hmm. once i found that a neighbor had written, you know, some insights about the Douglases and, and Frederick Douglass. I was like fascinated. Oh, then we have to use this. And I yeah. thought that was a good
1: place to put it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because um, <laughs> white people were all up in in their business, you know, and <laughs> they just wanted to know every detail. Who's this German lady who's coming to stay with them? <laughs> who's this English lady who's coming to stay with them? But um, also it's a really unusual glimpse of some really interesting just kind of day-to-day uh, aspects of the Douglass' life that we wouldn't otherwise have because Frederick Douglass um, doesn't make any note of those kinds of things. Exactly. Right? and,
0: I, and I, So I took that to I took a lot of those things to mean like, this is none of your business. <laughs> like <laughs> my family my wife, mm-hmm. my home are none of your business. And uh, you know, and I think that's really interesting that I, I, I don't think that I thought about that until now, but I think that's really interesting how she, because I I was very much into the performance when she says, he rode a large white horse, his long flowing hair, and I was thinking, (laughs) yeah, she was sitting there watching him, like, look at, and also when she writes about how, which I didn't include, she wrote about how, as a child, she and her she and her siblings and her neighbors, her children, neighbors, would always run to their windows to see who mm. Frederick Douglass was bringing or when he was coming home mm. and how tall he was and this mm-hmm. was a celebrity and he brought other celebrities to to our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was no longer this small little middle class street. It was now a famous place and mm. I found that fascinating. How you know it was still you know the age of the celebrity. How how turned on we get.
1: That was Annette Daniels Taylor, talking about her soundwalk through Frederick Douglass's Rochester. It's called the Frederick Douglass Experiment, and it lives online at frederickdouglasexperiment.weebly.com. Right now we're gonna go back to our conversation with Lee fought a history professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, and the director of gender and women's studies there. I wanted to know more about Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony's famous friendship and whether we should believe all the hype. So Lee, I have to ask you about Frederick and Susan. Because a lot of people here in Rochester are very fond of talking about their friendship. You've said, though, that the extent of that friendship has often been overstated. So why do you think some people are so invested in that fiction today? And how would you characterize the nature of their relationship?
2: Well, um, how I would characterize their friendship would be, uh, to use a sense from the city term, because I watch a lot of trashy TV, um, would be frenemies. (laughs) Political allies is probably the best way I'd characterize it. This was the thing that I, when I started the book that I found most daunting, it ended up being the thing I found the least interesting, and it ended up being um, the one thing everybody wanted to hear about. And uh, to get to Douglas on women's rights, it ended up I had to go through the Black convention movement. That's where I found him the better women's rights man. But with him and Susan B. Anthony, I think um, in Rochester especially, you've got two local heroes who... They are running in similar circles, abolitionist circles, and they are both supporting women's rights. They show up at the same conventions quite often, but when you get down into it, there was a point in the early 1850s when Douglas started breaking away from the and this gets really boring boring for a lot of people who are not academics, but there are divisions within the abolitionist movement, and he ended up on one side and she was on the other. And because of these divisions, she actually ended up providing a lot of gossipy information to William Lloyd Garrison, and William Lloyd Garrison used that in really insidious ways to try to start a sex scandal against Frederick Douglass. He was basically saying that Frederick Douglass was having an affair with a white woman in his own house where his wife and children lived. And the person who's feeding him the kind of information to do this was Susan B. Anthony. Now, of course, this is untrue. The white woman was living with them for a time, but they weren't having an affair. But he's... She's stoking this because they're trying to discredit Douglas, cause his paper to fail, cause the white woman to go back to England, and then Douglas is no longer competition. And then later when Douglas remarries, after Anna dies, he remarries Helen Pitch, and Helen is white. And Anthony just loses her mind over this. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wants to write, you know, has published a letter chastising Douglas for marrying beneath himself. Not because he married a white woman, but because he married a woman. Doesn't he know that in the laws of the land, women are beneath men? So how could he marry beneath himself? And so she's turning it all into satire. And so she shows it to Susan and says, I'm going to publish this. And says, don't you dare. Don't you dare publish this. He's cast himself out of all politeness. Society and every reform movement. Don't ever invite him to another women's suffrage meeting ever again. And of course, Douglas and Helen show up in the front row at the next suffrage meeting. So, um, so they weren't friends, but they were could be political allies. And I think a lot of the the, the stories about them. One of the amazing things that. Stanton and Anthony did was create the history of women's suffrage. And in compiling that and their own autobiographies, that's where they start bringing Douglas into the narrative in a rather large way, and especially Anthony, because they're papering over some of the more unsavory racist things of the women's suffrage movement. And to kind of bring Douglas in as a figure whom they're friends with, they can paper over that and kind of have him grant his blessing posthumously in the story. And, you know, when they did that while he was still alive and speeches and so forth, he didn't stop them because he didn't want to interfere with women getting suffrage either. And he lived Elizabeth Katie Stanton in his Life and Times, he barely acknowledges Susan B. Anthony, so he refers to her as Miss Anthony. So it was um, it was a fraught relationship.
1: Can you talk more about these internal tensions within the suffrage movement, uh, or along the lines of gender, race, and class, uh, and how they really came to a head around the passage of the Fifteenth Amendment?
2: So you know what I keep saying, I'm almost apologizing for Douglas's stand on this, but activists don't write. The legislation. They sometimes have to react to the legislation. And um, the way the legislation was written, it was written by men who were desperate to get more Republican votes in the South. And the fact that the only people in the South at the time who would be willing to vote Republican were black, they were okay with that. They were not at all willing to let their own wives vote. And so they were going to, they wrote the the 15th Amendment in such a way that there was no way it could be construed to let women to vote. And this equal rights group, equal suffrage rights group, were put into a position where they had to react to that. And Stanton and Anthony were siding with, say, George Train, who was a white supremacist and making a lot of arguments for women's suffrage, using some very racist language, um, Saying that black men weren't fit for the right to vote, or immigrants, that you needed educated white women like themselves to counterbalance the ignorant votes of immigrants and African American men. Um, some of the um, compromises they made uh, with white Southern women to push black women to the side, even though black women had been very much part of the women's rights movement from the beginning, and so. To kind of bring Douglas in as a figure, a little bit with Sojourner Truth, but to bring Douglas in as this figure kind of says, well, they weren't as racist as all that. It it was just, you know, a tactic. It wasn't real. And, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm really happy Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did what they did. But we white ladies also have this really um, checkered past when it comes to race within the women's rights movement throughout the past couple of centuries.
1: Can you talk about Douglass' relationship with Ida B. Wells toward the end of his life, you know, maybe as a kind of foil to Susan B. Anthony in terms of the political alliance that they developed?
2: Uh, Well, first of all, she's just awesome. When she showed up, it's like she lit the fire under him again. He's, like, both of them have been kind of shoved to the side of the civil rights movement at where it was at that moment because she's a woman. So she's kind of pushed to the side. Yeah, yeah, little lady. And he's the old man. We'll bring him along, you know, like, here's Frederick Douglass, but, you know, don't talk because your ideas are past. And so she comes to him. She's got all of this information about the lynching. She's been a victim of terror. She's giving a speech to this empty church, and he's embarrassed. And... He says, This is terrible. I'm going to make sure that you get a full house next time. And then he went to the women of Washington, D.C., and they got her a full church. But she came to him to look for help. And he kind of found like his fire again there in his last few years. He was able to use his position to elevate her voice so that her message on lynching, which nobody really wanted to hear about because what she exposed that people were using rape as kind of the cover story for lynching and that was you didn't want to waste your moral capital and your political capital on you know these guys who are raping white women we won't touch that whereas um she thinks that's not really what's going on and if anyone's been raped it's black women and so he helped amplify and get her her research out there
1: and as you've said if anyone was well positioned to understand the insidiousness of this stereotype about black men's sexuality, it was Frederick Douglass, right? And it wasn't just Southerners and lynch mobs who were perpetuating this idea. It was also people like William Lloyd Garrison and Susan B. Anthony, as you said.
2: Oh, yeah. No, he had faced that his whole career. And there he was married to a white woman at the time. <laughs> And um, and had he gone like five miles in any direction, um, it, you know, he would have been subject to it himself. No, he he knew exactly the the charges, and so so they made a perfect team. I always thought of her as she's kind of like the the great the granddaughter.
1: Well, as we begin to wrap up here, I wanna talk about what you think are some of the lessons we can draw from the past as we celebrate the two hundred year anniversary of Frederick Douglass's birth. You know, as someone who teaches college students but also lectures for the general public, what are some of the most common misconceptions about the abolitionist past that we here in Western New York perpetuate? And how do you think we can address those?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I grew up in the South. I spent I guess I spent half my life in the South and well Okay, a little over half away from the South, you know, and when I came north, the first thing I realized was that everywhere was on the underground railroad, no literally every house was on the underground railroad, and that the South was where we keep the racism and and and, and you know I mean it shocked me the first time I saw the like, Confederate flag in the north, I'm like, you guys realize you won the war <laughs> and um. And so, when I'm teaching classes, now, I mean, I've got a really good crop of students right now, so um, they're a little more aware of this. But there were reasons that Black people, you know, fugitive slaves in the North, went to Canada. And if they had to hide in buckboards or on, in cupboards, think about that. That wasn't because everybody was happy to see them. When there had to be safe houses, it wasn't because everyone was a safe house. So the North was not necessarily a safe place for Black people. And that's not to condemn everyone's ancestors. I mean, I understand I come from the South and I descend from some really unpleasant people. But to to pay tribute to the difficulties that Black people faced and, and people who dare to be abolitionists and to honor that the people who were standing up usually were in the black community. So it would be people like Douglas and the people who went to the AME church there in Rochester, the Quakers, like the posts in there in Rochester, people who formed these little societies and faced ostracism, put them at the center of the story and understand that everybody around them, you know, they were islands. So it took courage. And that if you want to today stand up for justice, that it takes courage, because not everybody's on your side.
1: Well, with that said, in this year of Frederick Douglass, how do you think we best honor that legacy?
2: Well, um, one thing is to remember what Frederick Douglass was doing, I mean, what he was really doing. And one of the things he was doing with with his paper, with his narratives, with his autobiographies, was he was saying, listen to black people. We're telling you our experiences. We're telling you what we think. We're telling you what it means to be black in America. And if you if you care about America, if you care about what you, America's supposed to be, listen and do something about this.
1: All right, Lee fought, I want to thank you so very much for taking this time and talking with us today.
2: Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you for having me.
1: Lee Faw is a history professor at Lemoyne College and author of the book Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. We end today's show with Annette Daniels-Taylor talking about one of her other projects, a 45-minute theater piece entitled Nancy Goes to Seneca Falls, produced during her Underground Railroad residency at Young Audiences of Western New York. We talked about the impact that performance has had and about the importance of keeping up the fight for freedom today. I wanted to ask you about another one of your projects, um, Nancy Goes to Seneca Falls, because you know, we've been talking about um, women in the life of Frederick Douglass. What does the, the suffrage movement look like from the perspective of black women? Um, and how do you, as an artist, um, go into the historical record and, and kind of tell um, the Seneca Falls story from a different perspective mm-hmm. than it's often told from?
0: Oh, that's great. Well, that program started here as part of the um, Underground Railroad residency. And, uh, around 2008, I was doing research for the program. I found Nancy Freeman in the 1855 census. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she and her husband lived in Fort Plain, New York, a- along the Erie Canal, and they were one of a very small am- amount, maybe 20 African-American families that lived in and around Monroe County, mm-hmm. um, they had the distinction of own, of owning a boat and working the Erie Canal. And very few families, African American families, owned their own boat. They also owned their own home, but um, her husband was not allowed to vote because their home was worth under a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And so they had two. His name his name was Abram Abram Freeman and Nancy Freeman the census says that they were born free. However, it could be that they were simply you know, f- in fear and mm-hmm. said that they were born free. So there's a lot of different ways that this could go. Mm-hmm. So I, having Nancy's name, where she lived, what she did, and finding out that the Erie Canal was also like an Underground Railroad highway, mm-hmm. I simply assumed that they were workers on the Underground Railroad and so Nancy's story when I go into into performance mode with it is really to help families and children know that African Americans were the primary workers of the Underground Railroad and the the average Underground Railroad worker were anonymous, nameless people who took people in, gave them food, gave them places to live for a little while, maybe gave them clothes, money, gave them directions, maybe gave them rides on boats, on wagons, hid them in boxes and barrels. So it was just a person who was helpful
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and like the kind of help that would save your life helpful mm-hmm. and some of these people worked as official underground railroad workers for years and some of them simply would help when it was needed so they were like you know the freelance underground railroad workers mm-hmm. and in my story i like to think of nancy and abram as official underground railroad workers and in in the performance is a line where i say um during the end, if you know anyone who needs help, let them know that Nancy Freeman and the Freeman family on the Erie Canal, we help all. We are, There's plenty of room on our boat. Mm. And so I take a, different stories that I read and I center it around the Seneca Falls Women's Convention. That like That is Nancy and Abrams' goal. So today we're taking a detour from our normal route. And um, we're going to go to the Finger Lakes instead. And and she tells everyone why this is important. And maybe we might see Frederick Douglass there. And she tells them that she found out about it because someone left the North Star newspaper on the boat, and she read about the event. And so that's how the so that's how we bring Frederick Douglass into mm-hmm. this story. And mm-hmm. then she Nancy talks about other freedom seekers that she's read about. And so with all of these stories, it, I felt that it really and. Teachers and administrators have told me that it's helped students learn about what the Underground Railroad was and what legalized slavery in this country in the 19th and 18th century also was. And to run away was an illegal act, an act of activism, and it sometimes we have to act up in order for things to be right. There's a, uh, there's a story of Frederick Douglass being in DC going into his home. And before he goes into his home, he sees this young African-American man Coming towards him, and he just wants to ask him some questions. He's been looking for him, and he he finally got to find out where he lived. And he said, "Mr. Douglas, you know, I've been studying you, and I've been trying to do what's right. And I, you know, now I'm, i I find myself a free man. What can what can the young African American do to keep up the fight, to keep the struggle?" And Frederick Douglass turns around and he tells him, "Agitate, agitate." agitate. And I think that is the thing that sometimes we forget to do. We become very comfortable in our existence that we got ours. I got my job. I got my home. I got my car. I got my family. But that doesn't mean that everybody else is comfortable. If everyone had an income, if everyone had a purpose, if everyone had a job, then imagine what kind of America that would be. If our goal could be to try and make sure that our neighbors are not wanting, you know, the, the question whether it's possible or not is not, I don't think that is the focus. I think the focus is to keep up the fight so that everyone can be uplifted. Because if one person is enslaved, then we all are enslaved. If my sisters are still in, in bondage, then I'm really not free.
1: And as Frederick Douglass ended his What to the Negro Is the Fourth of July speech, I therefore end where I began with hope which is different than optimism, right? Yes. But hope and, um, yeah, commitment, right, to, to keep agitating. So, Annette Daniels-Taylor, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you,
2: Darren. It's <laughs> been great.
1: And that does it for this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Special thanks to Annette Daniels-Taylor, Lee Fought, and the staff of Young Audiences of Western New York. You can catch up on any episodes you missed on demand on our Mixcloud page. Go to mixcloud.com slash our earnest struggle. The views expressed on this show don't necessarily reflect the views of the City of Rochester or the partnering organizations of the Re-Energizing Douglas Bicentennial Committee. If you'd like to be a part of future episodes, send us an email at wxirnews at gmail.com. For Rochester's Community Media Center, I'm Darian Lehman. Thanks so much for listening.